Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Dear Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that an upsurge in gun-related violence is a public health emergency equivalent to the COVID-19 pandemic, declared a new state of emergency in New York this week. But critics say other approaches would be more effective and question the governor's political motivations in taking actions that give him more power. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The first state in the nation is going to declare a disaster emergency on gun violence. Less than two weeks after giving up the emergency powers he held during the pandemic, Cuomo says a state of emergency declaration is once again needed as shooting incidents continue to increase and threaten public health. He says over the July 4th weekend, 51 people were the victims of gun violence, more than the 13 New Yorkers who died from the coronavirus. We want to do with gun violence what we just did with COVID. That's what we want. We want the same level of attention, the same level of energy. The emergency declaration sets up a new Office of Gun Violence Prevention within the state's health department. State police will set up a type of border control operation to try to seize illegal guns brought in from other states before they are used to commit crimes. The emergency order also allows the governor to suspend state procurement rules to funnel $138 million in state funds to gun prevention and community-based services programs. Several Democratic state lawmakers and union leaders who attended the speech backed the actions. But others, including the state's Republican leaders, say there's no need for the governor to once again grant himself special powers. Will Barclay is the Assembly Minority Leader. He says recent criminal justice changes enacted by Democrats in the legislature and signed by the governor, including bail reform and a measure known as Raise the Age, which treats 16- and 17-year-olds who commit serious crimes as juveniles instead of adults were well-intentioned but went too far. He says it's better to revise those laws to prevent career criminals from taking advantage. Whether it's bail reform, whether it's raise the age, or this general narrative about defunding the police and the police are our enemies, I think the combination of all those policies is having a, a big effect on this increase in violent crime we're seeing throughout the state. The governor is facing different political circumstances than in the spring of 2020 when he obtained sweeping emergency powers during the pandemic that allowed him to shut down schools and businesses and even limit the number of people someone could invite to their home. His executive orders and daily briefings on the virus brought him widespread praise and the highest popularity ratings among voters during his decade as governor. Now Cuomo is facing multiple scandals and investigations, including allegations of sexual harassment and whether he and his top aides hid the number of nursing home residents who died of the virus. A recent poll by Siena College finds most New Yorkers don't want him to seek a fourth term in office, but the survey also found that most New Yorkers largely continue to approve of Cuomo's handling of the pandemic. Barclay, the Assembly Republican leader, says the governor, in declaring a new state of emergency, may be trying to regain some of his lost footing. I can't guess someone's motivation 
information or get in their heads, but there's certainly no doubt that the governor enjoyed his time in the limelight during the COVID pandemic when he was calling all the shots. I mean, he had a, a daily press conference. He even, as you know, wrote a book uh, with help from staff, apparently, uh, about leadership during that pandemic. So, you know, it's not hard to just draw the line from A to B here. Cuomo's likely GOP opponent in the race for governor, Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin, was more blunt. He called the governor's actions the Cuomo Show 2.0, and he said that no one wants to relive that chapter of state history. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, well, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams has won the Democratic primary for mayor of New York City. According to the AP, Adams triumphed over a large field in New York's first major race to use ranked choice voting. He defeated rivals including former city sanitation commissioner Catherine Garcia, civil rights lawyer Maya Wiley, and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Adams will be heavily favored in the November election over the Republican nominee, Guardian Angels founder Curtis Sliwa. Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley did not concede. Ms. Wiley even criticized election officials, and we know that there was a big problem with the vote count right from the start. Yes. Well, first of all, it was complicated. There's no question about it because ranked choice voting is new to the people of New York. Secondly, it is a real kerfuffle in that when people come this close, they don't like to give up. And that's why you're going to see legal issues and others happening. The big advantage for Eric Adams, of course, David, is that he is a former cop and there are murders happening in New York and all around the country in great numbers. And so you better believe that people put their safety first. So because there is such chaos in terms of the streets and murders, Adams was a big beneficiary of the fact that people just want their safety first. That's why he won, in my opinion. Well, the issue of guns and gun violence. We know what's happening in cities across the country, including New York City. Your reference to Eric Adams, former cop, and the issue there. Now, New York can try to sue gun manufacturers over harm caused by their products under legislation that Governor Cuomo has signed. Cuomo also Tuesday issued an executive order that would declare a disaster emergency on gun violence. It's the first in the nation executive order. Cuomo said the state will work to combat the surge in gun violence in seven areas, treat gun violence like a public health emergency, target hotspots with data and science, positive engagement for at-risk youth, break the cycle of escalating violence, get illegal guns off the streets, keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, and rebuild the police-community relationship. Certainly, if the state follows suit on this, that helps someone like Eric Adams in New York City. Well, David, think about it this way. This is really a mess because, as we know, Americans are addicted to guns, and they won't let them go. Every time I say something like this on the air, I get letters saying, you know, this is our safety or one of those tropes that you get every once in a while. So let it be clear that by the time these get to the Supreme Court of the United States, those people up there, I 
could use an appellation called stupid, come up with a defense of an amendment to the Constitution, which really doesn't mean what they say it means. And so what happens is we are faced with continuance of this gun nonsense. Americans have been polled. They don't want the guns. They have make it clear they're for gun control. It doesn't matter. We're just in a terrible situation where we are addicted to guns and people are walking around with them. And instead of punching each other, they shoot each other. On top of this, we know that there are big problems with gangs. And the resurgence of gangs, of course, is one of the reasons that you're getting these shootings in the inner cities. The cops know it, and they're doing what they can, but it's very hard to control. Well, let's turn to something else that's big in New York City, and that's the situation around the prosecution of the Trump Organization. We saw last week Alan Weisselberg, the chief finance officer for the Trump Organization, being taken in, believed, as you pointed out, to be a way of getting him to flip on Trump and the organization's practices, since he was so involved in signing just about every check that went in and out of the organization. The situation there, of course, is that we have the Attorney General, Tish James, cooperating with with DA's office. Cy Vance stepping aside. It looks like Alvin Bragg is the new DA. From what I've read about him, African-American, has experience as a prosecutor. Are they able to move this forward, and will anything come out of it? You know, there's a long story here. We don't really know what Trump's relationships with any politician are. I'm sure that every politician has approached the Trump organization at one point or another. You got to hope that the new district attorney has the integrity that you hope somebody will have. But it could be that this is going to be one where we have to keep our eye on the prize. And if the new district attorney doesn't do more than the outgoing district attorney did when it comes to the prosecution of Trump, then I think we're in real trouble. So um, we'll see. I mean, after all, this guy, Trump, has um, used his powers uh, to help himself over and over and over again. And I'm sure he's made many political contributions. And we'll see. We'll just see whether or not he beats the game. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The U.S.-Canada border has been closed since March 20, 2020, with all but essential travelers limited since. There have been growing calls on both sides to reopen the border now that vaccinations are curtailing the spread of COVID-19. And in Plattsburgh this week, Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer said if there's not an agreement soon, the U.S. should unilaterally open its border. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley has more. 
Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that fully vaccinated Canadians returning to the country from the U.S. would no longer need to quarantine. According to the CBC, he was, quote, hopeful that we're going to see new steps on reopening announced in the coming weeks, unquote. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, a New York Democrat, was in St. Lawrence County in May to call on Canadian authorities to present a concrete reopening plan. He visited the state's northern tier on Tuesday to reiterate his call. Adjacent to a row of dry-docked sailboats at the Plattsburgh Boat Basin, all of them sporting Quebec or Montreal registrations, Schumer declared that if Canada is reticent to open the border, the U.S. must act on its own. Now that they have not moved forward, the U.S. must do two things. First, we expand the definition of essential travel to include vaccinated Canadian citizens with family, property, educational, medical, tourist, or business interest. And then the United States on its own should unilaterally open the border to vaccinated Canadians. If Canada doesn't want Americans to come there, that's their business. We hope they will stop that. And we're pushing to get them to change. But we can on our own say we welcome Canadian citizens here. Schumer says with the state's high vaccination rates and subsequent decline in coronavirus cases here and across the country, it's clear an agreement can be reached. He said there is a clear economic need to reopen traffic between the two countries. It's estimated that Canadian travelers, two million of them in 2019, contributed hundreds of millions of dollars to our North Country economy. In 2020, Cross-border car traffic was down 98% at both the Champlain and Rouse's Point crossings. The anomaly is a U.S. citizen can fly all the way to Europe but can't go over the border even if it's a few minutes away in Canada. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And businesses, of course, who rely on cross-border activity have seen their bottom line slashed. There are some loopholes that a few Canadians have taken advantage of to cross the border. Montreal resident Frédéric Pichon was nearby doing maintenance on her sailboat. She had taken a 20-minute flight to Plattsburgh and shipped her truck across the border. It's not logic because uh, we can drove back, but the only way to come in, uh, in the United States actually is to flight. But... To go back, no problem. I can go back with my car and my trailer. And uh, the only thing I have to uh, take a test three days after. And since the uh, 5th of July, uh, the Canadian who come back to Canada doesn't have to uh, do a quarantine anymore. Senator Schumer has written to Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas urging them to move unilaterally by July 21st. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. The bridge over the Schoharie Creek has been deemed, quote, structurally and functionally obsolete. One of thousands across the country that lawmakers say a new infrastructure package could address. Your congressman, Antonio Delgado, spoke with the House, spoke about the House bill at the bridge Tuesday. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Delgado, a Democrat from the 19th District, says he secured funding to repair the nearly 100-year-old bridge in the House passed 
Invest in America Act. We must replace this bridge to protect Schoharie residents. And let's be clear, we can't close the bridge. We need to and reroute traffic. We need to invest in the bridge. Closing this bridge will result in a 14-mile round trip. 14-mile round trip for families, small businesses, and farmers of Schoharie. So that's why it was important for us to try to secure funding in the Invest in America Act to replace the Bridge Street Bridge, to improve upon it. $6,254,400. If we get this bill through, not just the House, but the Senate and signed at the President's desk, we get the funding that we know we need here in our communities for the bridge. Schoharie Fire Chief Doug Stinson says people don't realize the importance of just one bridge for the community. The ability for us to respond to emergencies, the ability for kids to be picked up for school, uh, the ability for people just to get to work. Commissioner of Public Works Dan Crandell noted Schoharie County is in the eighth most rural congressional district in the country. He says when the bridge was first built, back in the early 1900s, it was state-of-the-art. Today, it is one of the three most heavily trafficked bridges in the county. The rehab cost on this bridge is $5.5 million, so it's really not economically feasible to rehab this bridge when a new, new bridge construction cost is $7.8 million. It just doesn't make sense to rehab it. So we're hoping that the uh, infrastructure bill passes both the House and the Senate, and we get the funding, and uh, we can get this bridge replaced. The new bridge won't have any height restrictions on it. It'll also have 12-foot travel lanes and five-and-a-half-foot shoulder walkway on each side, so it'll be a big improvement for the community. Delgado says both chambers continue to work on infrastructure, but it's not clear what the Senate will approve. You know, I'm home now in the district for the next, most of us are, right, for the next uh, week or two. When we get back um, later on this month, I think the intensity to get this done uh, is going to be ratcheted up. Delgado adds, Coharie will receive money to fix the bridge as soon as the ink dries on the legislation. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With the COVID-19 pandemic coming under control, lawmakers in the Hudson Valley and other Lyme disease hotspots hope attention and money return to tick-borne disease education and research. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn with more. It seems ticks were out in greater force in the spring than in recent history. The early data from our area in the Hudson Valley suggest that at least for black-legged ticks, um, this is a, uh, a greater-than-normal year. Uh, an average year is dangerous, and this is even more dangerous in 2021. Especially, says Dr. Rick Osfeld, the nymph stage tick, which was active in June and poses the greatest risk of disease transmission to people. On a personal note, Osfeld says he is also seeing many more dog ticks. Republican State Senator Sue Serino also notices a tick surge. Stepping off of the blacktop, it was amazing how quick my husband got four ticks on him. Stepping off the blacktop momentarily into some tall grass. Others in the region tell similar stories. Again, Sereno. 
but now it is so bad. I just had a, a woman uh, do a fundraiser uh, for raising money for research for the prevention of, uh, you know, education for prevention because her husband got neurological Lyme and he um, died by suicide. Sadly, he couldn't take it. So that just happened this year. In 2018, the New York state budget included an unprecedented $1 million for efforts to combat Lyme and tick-borne disease. Since, the budget has allocated $250,000. Ostfeld, a distinguished senior scientist with the Millbrook-based Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, says Lyme disease research needs a major financial boost. We need the help. <laughs> we were struggling to address the issues. We don't lack ideas, and in many areas we don't lack for uh, technology to do the kind of research we want to do. We lack the financial support to do it as effectively as we possibly can uh, in trying to address, to solve the problems, to understand tick biology, to educate the public appropriately. One bill that could help a bit passed the Senate, but not the Assembly. Democrat Pete Harcum of the 40th District sponsored the bill in the Senate with Serino as a co-sponsor. This bill would give people the opportunity um, to play a role in, you know, supporting for research, prevention, and education by donating through a tax checkoff. And that would be a, a new fund that would be dedicated to bolstering the research in the field because that's where, you know, we need the money for that. The bill is sponsored in the Assembly by Democrat Dee Dee Barrett. She and Serino have worked together on other Lyme-related bills. Serino represents the 41st District, which includes a large portion of Dutchess County and part of Putnam County, while Barrett represents the 106th District, containing parts of Dutchess and Columbia counties. All have high numbers of cases of Lyme and tick-borne diseases. A bill on the governor's desk, Barrett sponsored, Serino co-sponsored, and Democratic Senator Michelle Hinchy sponsored, directs the Commissioner of Agriculture and Markets to develop a public awareness campaign regarding Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. A measure calling for tick warning signs at state parks was signed in 2019, and Barrett says she has an annual resolution. You know, historically, May has been Lyme Disease Awareness Month in the state of New York, and I have uh, started sponsoring that resolution in April instead of in May because I really think we need to make people aware that ticks are pretty much active, once, you know, at any point that the temperature is above freezing, and uh, and certainly it starts much sooner than May, and uh, it, with climate change we've seen, you know, in, even earlier. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, some 476,000 Americans are diagnosed and treated for Lyme disease each year. New York is a hot spot. Serino, whose brother was sick with a tick-borne disease for 10 years before being diagnosed, says convincing state legislators outside regions with high numbers of ticks and disease of the urgent need for funding can be challenging. You know, I talked to our other colleagues and I said to them, even though you live in New York City, where are your um, constituents vacationing? They're coming up to the Hudson Valley, to the Adirondacks, and they have to be aware of Lyme and tick-borne diseases. And this money actually helps that. Barrett, who launched a public awareness campaign a few years ago using hashtag get ticked off, wants the state to play more of a role. Well, I have actually found, um, you know, a lot of, of, of in- interest and support from my colleagues uh, across the state. You know, certainly, as you say, Long Island. I mean, I think um, some of the, the, the New York City members are understanding more, but we've, we've really developed a coalition um, starting with Central New York, the Central New York Lyme Alliance uh, 
to uh, you know to to really um, work together to uh, put the focus and put pressure on the state and you know in this case it's the health department of health which has just been I I think um, you know a, a less than engaged and less than active and I understand they've been dealing with COVID and a lot of other things but this has been an ongoing uh, crisis in New York State. A State Department of Health spokeswoman says New York has long been a national leader in tick-borne disease surveillance and in conducting activities to educate people on how to best protect themselves and their families from Lyme and other tick-borne diseases and that work continues. During the COVID-19 response, she says the state health department continues tick surveillance, collecting ticks from nearly all counties and testing those ticks for the presence of pathogens. It also continues to collect ticks in the lower Hudson Valley to monitor the spread of the newly identified Asian longhorn tick. In addition, the health department has been performing research on the economic burden of Lyme disease, the practices of tick removal and tick-borne disease education in schools, and the feasibility of utilizing four poster devices to help control ticks. The four poster device is a passive feeding station that applies a pesticide to white-tailed deer as they feed. Meantime, federal lawmakers say they are putting on the pressure to increase funding. Democratic New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in June called for $12 million for the Department of Defense's Tick-Borne Disease Research Program and additional funding for tick-borne disease research at the CDC. Again, Barrett. You know, obviously she represented this region in uh, Congress when she was first elected before she became a senator. So she understands the history here and she knows um, how pervasive it is. And and, um, I think it's really important that we, you know, we have the 21st Century Working Group, um, which has been, you know, I I don't know how active it's been lately, but um, that was an important uh, step for the federal government. And um, this is obviously hugely important. I mean, there's an enormous need for the research uh, that money like that could uh, support. So, um, you know, I'm really delighted to hear that that, uh, that this is on her radar screen as a priority. The Tick-Borne Disease Working Group was authorized by the 21st Century Cures Act in 2016. Fellow Democratic Senators Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Ed Markey of Massachusetts also signed the letter with Gillibrand. The Cary Institute's Ostfeld. $12 million, um, you know, is, is a healthy boost, but it is not a lot of money. It doesn't go very far. It would support... Um, a few projects for a few years, which is definitely worthwhile and valuable and hopefully would be only a start. Um, it, it doesn't measure up to the magnitude of the problem, in my view. He says it is encouraging to have Gillibrand, Serino, Barrett, and others pushing for more funding for tick-borne disease research and education. A few days after the letter requesting $12 million, Blumenthal, Gillibrand, Markey, and Chris Murphy of Connecticut sent a letter to the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Labor, Health, and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies, calling for $50 million to bolster the CDC's efforts to prevent and address tick-borne illnesses like Lyme disease, including $20 million for grants for states. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Pass for program number 2128. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. 